I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is Dr. Meg Chisholm. She is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences, a professor of medicine, and the vice chair for education in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. The director of the Paul McHugh Program for Human Flourishing, she is the co-author of Systematic Psychiatric Evaluation, a step-by-step guide to applying the perspectives of psychiatry. She is the recent author of From Survive to Thrive, Living Your Best Life with Mental Illness, a book uh, we'll discuss a bit today. Meg, thanks for coming on the podcast. Ah, thanks for having me, Aaron. What a delight. Absolutely. Um, you begin the book by writing that we are all trying to get to a point where we are flourishing. And as you mentioned, human beings by nature are imperfect. Uh, no person in the whole world already has what he or she wants. And every tradition, I think, worth its weight, whether secular or religious, teaches this. Uh, as you put it, you can still flourish even if you are struggling psychologically, have been diagnosed with a mental illness, or experiencing adverse life events. And in one of the chapters, you quote a colleague of yours as saying that flourishing is a state in which all aspects of a person's life are good. Can you delineate the difference between this and perfection? What does it mean to flourish as an imperfect human in the face of of mental illness and and really the harshness of human life? Yeah, so that's a great question, Aaron. I think that um, you know when we think about flourishing, we're really thinking about uh, an aspiration um, that's lifelong towards reaching our greatest potential as human beings. And so I would say no one reaches an endpoint on their journey towards flourishing because as you point out, we are are all imperfect uh, human beings. Um, and it's a lifelong journey to, to trying to fulfill uh, our fullest, greatest potential. Um, and that can look very different for different people, especially people who've been affected by psychiatric illness. Uh, they may have started life with one potential and then had that trajectory uh, changed, altered by their illness. Sometimes they actually, uh, one with psychiatric illness, I shouldn't say they, (laughs) we uh, all encounter psychiatric uh, problems, problems in our thinking and thoughts and um, actions throughout our life. And I think that uh, people can sometimes reach a greater potential than they had originally uh, thought themselves capable of because of the psychiatric problems, because of the adversity that they've faced. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe we can delve into a little bit more about uh, uh, how that uh, suffering or struggle kind of leads to, leads to flourishing. Yeah, so I'm addiction medicine certified, and so I think a lot in terms of people who have um, encountered uh, substance uh, use disorder problems in their lives and thinking about, for instance, the uh, treatment of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, and how uh, people might have really had relatively circumscribed lives and uh, aspirations prior to their addiction. And then once they get into the addiction um, treatment, uh, some, uh, a tradition like AA or NA, they're asked to reflect on their life goals and their potential and their meaning and purpose in a way that they might have not encountered in in a life without addiction. And so in the process of that therapy, they actually can uh, reach a, uh, a more full understanding of what their uh, what a good life could look like for them and actually go much further than they may have gone if they hadn't had that illness uh, of addiction interrupt their, their trajectory. Mm. And can you maybe discuss for us the four, you mentioned in the book, these four pathways to flourishing. Can you uh, make maybe take us through those those four pathways? 
Yeah, so this is really based on a model developed at Harvard by Tyler Vanderweel. And he's a statistician and epidemiologist that looked at these large epidemiologic data sets that weren't designed really to test this idea of flourishing. But there are these common domains of flourishing that have you know, been discussed by philosophers for years. Um, and those domains are happiness and life satisfaction, meaning and purpose, mental and physical health, character and virtue, and close social relationships. And so he looked at those sort of domains or outcomes of flourishing that were captured by these large epidemiologic data sets. And he went back to see what factors led to people achieving these domains of flourishing. And again, these studies, these epidemiologic data sets weren't designed to look at this specifically, but he was able to draw causal links between the outcomes of flourishing and then these factors. And he found that there were four main kind of uh, pathways of flourishing. And each one of these was supported by multiple studies um, suggesting this causal link. Uh, And the four pathways to flourishing are family, work, education, and community, and specifically religious community, in part because that's the type of community that was uh, asked about in these epidemiologic surveys. So so those pathways, family, work, education, and religious community, are the ones that um, are connected causally to these domains of flourishing. And it's really interesting to me, again, thinking about um, addiction, how really without knowing explicitly the scientific evidence that was supporting these connections, how just intuitively um, uh, addiction treatment has really evolved to support those pathways. When somebody is in the throes of addiction, they usually have broken uh, these pathways to flourishing. You know, the, the family has, uh, relationships are often interrupted sometimes because <clears throat> the addiction, you know, causes uh, character to erode um, and people might lie or uh, steal from family members in, um, in an effort to get money for drugs, for instance. Uh, so family relationships are broken. Uh, work is disrupted. Obviously, it's um, very difficult in uh, active addiction to remain steadily employed and uh, have people depend on you. Um, And then the uh, education is often interrupted. Um, People who uh, might be in high school might have to drop out because of the addiction, or if they're in college or in vocational training, they may have that interrupted again because of the addiction. And then community is clearly interrupted. People replace their usual community of friends with people who are using drugs, um, and that gets very narrowed. And so one of the goals of addiction treatment is really to rebuild those pathways. And that's one great service that AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, or Narcotics Anonymous serves, is creating a drug-free community um, that can support someone as their brain is adjusting to not having that constant stimulus of drugs and that dopamine surge that comes with uh, seeking out drugs. So as the brain's set point for this neurotransmitter specifically of dopamine is reset, which usually takes about 18 months, you know, people go to meetings sometimes every day uh, for months or, or years um, to uh, as they're rebuilding the rest of their lives, as they're re- reconnecting with family, as they're um, getting a job. I mean, in addiction treatment at um, my institution, Johns Hopkins, we really ask people to get a job within the first um, year of their treatment because having that sense of meaning and purpose that comes with a job with somebody depending on you really helps protect against the um, the boredom uh, that is often a trigger for drug use. And then rebuilding uh, their educational uh, commitments and, and goals and reengaging in, in learning is also, you know, essential for recovery. So, um, so these ideas of these pathways to flourishing are very apparent. 
um, when we're working with people with addiction. Um, and then I think you can we can all understand how during the pandemic, uh, all those pathways were interrupted, disrupted, uh, and we are seeing you know epidemic uh, uh, languishing, if not uh, mental distress. So uh, that's no surprise. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, a couple of questions. Do you see a certain theme between these four pathways, uh, like a relationship between all of them? And is there any literature to support the idea that one is more or less important than the others? Yeah, so in terms of the um, this model that was developed by Vanderweel um, and the evidence kind of linking each of these pathways really to each of the domains of, of flourishing, there's not one that is more robust than the other. Now, you know, Vanderweel has a very large grant and is now designing a prospective epidemiologic study to specifically test this model. Um, and I think we'll have more um, data coming out of that, more evidence that will answer the questions that you're asking. Um, but in terms of the relationship of these pathways, I think the common denominator is that these are all about interpersonal um, connections, relationships, uh, people depending on one another. Um, I mean, you're you know, you depend on your family. That's relatively obvious um, uh, from the time you're a young age, and you know the, the the adage that it's really your family that's going to be there for you uh, for the rest of your life. Friends come may come and go, um, but you know the family is is somebody who we lean on for support. We prop each other up in times of adversity, and likewise at a job. You know, people are, it's not the money really that keeps people going to their work. Obviously, the money's important, uh, but it's really the sense that somebody's depending on you. Like, if you don't show up, you know, you're putting a burden on your coworkers to perform in your absence. So, people are depending on you, and there's a sense of responsibility uh, that you have to your coworkers. And I think, likewise, in education, um, you know, people are depending on you for your ideas, for your um, your contributions to the learning community, and certainly in the, your religious community and faith communities, there are um, people depending on one another for for not only support but for um, enrichment intellectually and morally. Yeah, I love the the way that you put this in the book regarding work. You write. Perhaps we instinctively realize that doing some kind of regular activity gives our lives cohesion and structure as well as purpose. Work can help you thrive and flourish. Um, during the pandemic, obviously, so many people began to work remotely. Uh, and I wonder if you see that as a, um, as a negative in, in, in this realm of flourishing, because it, I guess this is a very superficial reading, but it detaches you from your work community uh, and it sort of silos you out inside your apartment or house or wherever it is that you work. So you're not socially interacting or it's really all over Zoom, which I, I find to be kind of a impoverished version of, of social interaction. Uh, do you think that that's an accurate understanding of this? Do we not know enough yet? Um, does it does that matter, this this kind of working remotely? Yeah, I mean, I think there's sort of competing goods sometimes. You know, obviously, if people have family, um, it actually may help their family commitments to be working remotely. Um, but certainly in terms of our work commitments to one another, um, it, it, that is a, working remotely is a huge challenge to building that work community. Um, and we see this, I think, you know, with the difficulty, can you imagine starting a new job? Um, I've talked to many people who started new jobs during the pandemic and the sense of not really feeling a, um, a sense of community and commitment. Um, I mean, these things that we took so for granted, like celebrating birthdays, I guess they could even become annoying at a certain point, right? Um, at our, our, at our job. But 
those things really matter and they really connect people with one another as people uh, and not just as, you know, widgets at a job. So I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of people, um, you know, changing jobs or feeling less satisfied in their work. Uh, But again, I think the trade-off is there's often increased satisfaction in um, their ability to connect with their family or other communities outside of work. So, um, yeah, I think it's a, there's trade-offs, um, but I, I think work is one that, for the most part, um, that has da- the pandemic has really damaged that those connections that we create. I want to switch um, to, to talking about perspectives of psychiatry a bit because you know when we had uh, Dr. Paul McHugh on the podcast, he mentioned um, he mentioned the perspectives of psychiatry as a more appropriate method of identifying. Uh, mental illness and helping patients with mental illness uh, than the more widely used DSM, which for our listeners who don't know is sort of a a large, very large book with criteria for diagnosing psychiatric disease. Uh, and, and the book, your book revolves a lot, I think, around the perspectives. Um, can you explain to us what exactly the the perspectives of psychiatry are? Yeah. So, um, you know, the the perspectives of psychiatry is really a framework for thinking about the origin of psychiatric problems. And um, I think most psychiatrists, um, especially because of the DSM, really think categorically about psychiatric problems as having biological roots um, and uh, looking like diseases, and then they therefore treat these like they would a disease, trying to remedy or or cure them with medications primarily. Um, And certainly the origin of many types of psychiatric problems are diseases. We know that there are brain diseases like schizophrenia, there's traumatic brain injury, um, there's manic depressive illness, now called bipolar disorder, um, and these are clearly um, diseases. They often um, some of these run in families. They even in uh, twins that are adopted apart. Um, they have stereotypical uh, signs and symptoms uh, around the world that aren't culturally bound. They um, are remedied by medications. Um, So there's a lot of indirect evidence that these are diseases. But that's only one um, possible origin for psychiatric problems. And usually uh, just treating somebody's disease, giving them a medication is not going to be sufficient, even if they have a psychiatric disease, um, to getting them better. And so this The idea of the perspectives of psychiatry is we take each patient's um, problems that they bring us and we consider them from four different perspectives. Um, So that is a visual analogy. Um, And we're really looking at um, asking ourselves four questions. How much of these problems are due to a, a psychiatric disease, a broken part or function in the brain? How much of these problems are due or how relevant is a question of of whether or not these problems are arising or have their origin in something that the patient has encountered in their life, um, like the loss of a loved one, uh, or you could even say just the kind of encounter of having a disease and what that might mean to someone, how much of the uh, person's problems are due or have their origin in something that the person is doing, uh, something, uh, a behavior that they're engaging in, like restricting their food intake in the case of an eating disorder or using a substance in case of an addiction. And then the fourth perspective, so I've talked about the disease perspective, the life story perspective, what they've encountered, the behavior perspective, uh, 
uh, how much is because of what someone is doing. And then the fourth perspective is how much um, we might ask ourselves how much of the patient's problem uh, can be attributed to who the person is as a person, their personality. Is it, you know, do they have cognitive limitations? Do they have affective temperament uh, vulnerabilities that in a certain situation, you know, they might be prone to feel things very strongly or live so much in the present that they don't heed uh, potential consequences for their actions. So those are complicated, um, you know, uh, questions to ask, and it really requires taking a pretty uh, thorough history of a patient trying to understand who they are as a person, what they've encountered in their life, uh, the meaning that they're giving to the events in their life, seeing if they are uh, engaging in behaviors that are um, narrowing their choices in life, um, and then finally uh, assessing for any presence of a, a, a disease or a you know, functional or structural problem uh, based in the brain. Um, so that's the difference between the perspectives of psychiatry and the Diagnostic uh, Statistical Manual, which really is just a, a, a catalog, um, some, including Dr. McHugh, would say a field guide that describes the various signs and symptoms associated with various categorical diagnoses. Um, and that the DSM was really designed to be atheoretical not speaking to the origin of these problems, but by default has become, um, because disease reasoning is really, uh, lends itself to categorization, has become um, really, in general, uh, thought to be a, a catalog of diseases, not psychiatric problems whose origins are open to uh, questioning and um, interpretation. Mm. Yeah, it, it seems that the that perspectives is much more holistic. It takes a view of the entire person in his or her life, and DSM is a, a lot of check boxes. Um, yeah, probably exactly. very a, a cheap way of criticizing it, but no, but it is a checklist. You know, it's list signs and symptoms. Do the do, do you have these? Do you not have these? The problem is, um, you know, the DSM really was designed primarily for research purposes, or at least it's from the DSM-3 on, was really designed to have good reliability uh, between diagnoses. So that, say, if you were in London and I was doing research here in Baltimore, and we were both wanting to research the illness of schizophrenia, that we'd want to make sure that the patients that we were enrolling in our study resembled one another uh, and could be reliably um, diagnosed using these criteria as having schizophrenia. Uh, and that's really a great idea, <laughs> um, but uh, it wasn't really meant to be used as, it says nothing about validity of these illness, of these problems, these diagnoses, and also um, wasn't really meant to be a clinical tool uh, per se. Unfortunately, as the DSM has grown in the number of diagnoses and the number of pages in the book, um, it the re reliability has really broken down. And in the field trials where they tested the reliability of, in the most recent version of DSM, DSM-5, of the diagnosis of major depressive disorder, which is a relatively common, commonly given diagnosis, uh, there was really uh, very low reliability. Um, so the DSM isn't really even that good uh, for reliability. There's a lot of nonspecific signs and symptoms that could be attributed to multiple um, diagnostic categories, which is why we often see as psychiatrists people coming to us with about five or 10 different DSM diagnoses, you know, anxiety disorder, schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, uh, bipolar disorder, all in the same person. Um, so it's really limited, I think, in its utility. And 
pretty much more um, a, a billing tool <laughs> rather than uh, an understanding and um, uh, you know a method for understanding somebody's problems and their origins and the goals of treatment and those kinds of things that are so important. And like I said, these aren't these perspectives aren't mutually exclusive. You know, somebody can have a disease, but that disease, by virtue of the meaning they give it, um, is something that they've encountered or are dealing with. And everybody has uh, personality, and so one's particular personality might cause, you know, might alter one's ability to really cope with a, a, an event like being given a diagnosis of a disease or uh, cope with uh, the loss of a loved one or any other things that people might encounter. So as I say, everybody has a life story. Everybody has um, a, a personality. So at the very minimum, we need to understand those two aspects of a person. Um, and before we uh, go further in thinking about the behaviors and diseases that people might be um, encountering as well. It's it's funny you mention this as a uh, seemingly like people come in with five or ten of these DSM diagnoses because I I have that in in clinic sometimes I will see patients and under their diagnoses listed all these you know anxiety disorder panic disorder dep major depressive disorder and it's hard for me. Uh, I'm not a psychiatrist, but it's hard for me to kind of like focus in a way because it's this blur of all these diagnoses and it just seems like, okay, they're all in one box. Uh, and it's just, it feels very unhelpful as a clinician when you see that. Yeah. And I think it really does speak to the low reliability because often people have seen more than one uh, healthcare professional who've given these diagnoses. And so I might see somebody and say they have generalized anxiety disorder. Somebody else might say they have a depressive disorder. And, you know, and, and lots of this is, lots of these diagnoses can be biased, not only because of how we trained or what our area of research is, but by demographic factors as well. I mean, it's well known that African-Americans have been and continue to be overdiagnosed with schizophrenia compared to um, white people uh, who are more likely to have a mood disorder diagnosis given when they come in with a psychotic symptom, for instance. Hmm. And why why have the perspectives not been more widely adopted? What is, what is the staying appeal of the DSM? Is it inertia? It's just been there. It's easy. You just reach for it. Uh, or is there some political motivation here, I, I have a hard time kind of understanding why it's not been more widely adopted. Yeah, I think all of the above. Uh, I mean, the DSM-3 really came into being around the time of managed care. And um, so there was a constriction in the amount of time that healthcare professionals, mental health professionals were able to spend with patients. And so, um, I think there's a perception that the perspectives of psychiatry would take more time uh, to use. Uh, I don't think that's true. It's certainly not in the long run. <laughs> I think it's a time saver. Um, but I, I think there's that perception. I think that, um, you know, we, we, we did an article, I think maybe 10 years ago, and we found that there were 200 articles that had been written about the perspectives of psychiatry. Um, so it was widely disseminated in in the literature. You know, there are people who have trained at Hopkins, where we've been trained in the perspectives of psychiatry since 1975. Um, people who trained at Hopkins who went on to be department chairs and other academic medical centers, departments of psychiatry, and have been program directors for uh, the training of psychiatrists. Um, and they've certainly brought some of these ideas and you know, disseminated them at their institutions. Um, but I think that, um, I think that the DSM has sort of uh, a stronghold in uh, American psychiatry. It really, it's uh, published by the American Psychiatric Association. 
it's clearly a political process, what goes into the DSM. Um, uh, some diagnoses do not have evidence for them um, that is that strong, um, yet the political process uh, allows uh, these to enter into the DSM. I think there's also, uh, 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 I think Dr. McHugh was not part of the American Psychiatric Association kind of organization in terms of um, active, you know, being a president there or anything like that. He had other interests in uh, psychiatry and philosophy uh, and other organizations that he was more allied with. And um, I think um, for that reason, I don't think it got the traction um, that it potentially could have. I, but I think it's largely because of managed care and the perception of taking more time and then the political process of, um, you know, of how important the DSM is to the American Psychiatric Association. You know, one of the things that and you mentioned this a bit earlier, one of the things that we do so often in medicine is ask patients to tell us a story. How did this start? How did it progress or regress? How has it affected you? Um, stories inform our diagnoses and treatments. Uh, and you tell multiple stories in the book, uh, your own stories, your patient stories. Um, and it seems that in psychiatry, maybe the importance of the story is even more pronounced. Uh, how do you think about the place of stories or life story in the diagnosis and treatment of mental illness? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to all of medicine, really, because, you know, people are meaning-making creatures, and we're constantly making meaning of events in our life, and um, understanding that uh is, I think, essential not only to treating psychiatric illness, but to treating non-psychiatric medical illness, right? I, I, <laughs> I've been astounded, really, um, by how little uh, some of my non-psychiatric colleagues um, have taken an interest in their patients' stories. Uh, and, you know, our psychiatric consultation service can attest to this, right? When we're consulted because somebody's crying in their room when they've been given a diagnosis. Or, you know, I was asked once to consult on a patient who wouldn't allow the, themselves to be examined by the team. And, you know, all I had to do is go in and ask, you know, do you think it's important? They said, yes. I said, well, what could we do to make that better for you or easier for you? And they told me. It was like a t two minutes at most. Um, but understanding the meaning of a, of a event or an encounter with a patient really doesn't take that much time and can be really informative in guiding care and treatment. So I think stories are critical. Um, everybody is making meaning and um, sometimes the stories they tell themselves or we tell ourselves can be adaptive, and other times they can really get in our way of reaching our goals um, and can throw us off course. So I, I think it's essential to all of medicine to uh, take an interest in our patients as human beings, uh, as people who um, are telling stories um, about their lives and I'm always curious about the the story that someone is telling. Um, that's what makes medicine interesting. Um, it's not just an interaction between two machines. It's two people um, who are making meaning um, and and creating meaning and seeking out meaning um, and being able to understand two worlds, my world and their world and how they connect is, is really important, I think, to the, to the practice of medicine. Yeah, two kind of just responses off the top of my head. One, I, I have noticed this too, that uh, both in the hospital and in the clinic, there is a reluctance to sit down and really get a full understanding of what's going on. And it, it's far easier to put in a consult 
uh, and ask someone else to do it than to uh, to talk to someone. And I, I, modern medicine is um, has gotten so crazy with um, I don't know the obsession with the electronic health record and the pulling of physicians in so many different directions so that they feel like they're always rushed, um, even if they're not necessarily uh, rushed. Um, the other thing, you know, when you, you talk about how we can sometimes use our stories to adapt to things, that, and which seems to imply maybe we change our stories um, to, uh, to jive with, with what we want to believe. Uh, and I imagine you encounter that a lot in, in your practice. What is a way of sort of um, thinking about that or thinking through that with patients? How do you work through that with patients? Because that seems like it's a very difficult thing to do. Well, you know, I, I usually start just by asking someone, you know, how they are making sense of something, right? How are they understanding this? Um, for instance, you know, somebody could come with the death of a child. And I'm interested in, you know, how they're, how they're making sense of that. That's a terrible thing. You know, why did, what's your understanding of why this happened? And people can have a lot of different stories, right? They can say that it was, um, you know, a random act of tragedy. um, Or they can say that it was because they, you know, were a bad person or had done something bad and this is their, you know, karma, or they can say that they have, you know, angered God in some way and this is retribution. I mean, they can have all kinds of stories that they can tell. But I think understanding what their story is, is the starting point. And then um, helping them collaboratively and I would say helping them collaboratively and tentatively rescripting the story, offering other possibilities, um, not imposing my own, you know, new, you know, more adaptive story on them, but really with them, kind of asking questions, getting them to reflect on, you know, their story and other possibilities and opening them up to other ways of perhaps processing what's happened is really important. Um, Again, staying tentative, staying collaborative. Um, You know, I might say, well, you know, I, you know, I noticed that you're saying this is because of something that you did. Um, But, you know, I'm wondering if there's another way of looking at this? What might be the benefit of thinking about this as a random act of tragedy? And then once you get someone sort of open to thinking about something in a new way that might be more adaptive, then we can start helping them make meaning of that tragedy. Uh, Because, you know, we're still going to want to make meaning of that. So how can we you know, memorialize the, that person who's passed away, that child that was lost. You know, how can we, um, you know, move forward together, um, making sense of that, giving its, you know, honoring that event, but also um, being able to go on with one's life. So I think there are ways that we can work together to help people develop more adaptive stories. Um, and again, um, it's a long process <laughs> and it does take time, but you know, I, th- I think it's what's needed in, in those cases. So um, I don't think there's any, any shortcuts here. Mm. And in the book, very movingly write about your own um, struggle with, with depression and, and you say, I was hesitant to seek um, professional treatment given the stigma surrounding mental illness and the further implications it had for me as a healthcare professional. 
what were those implications? What are those implications? Because um, I still think that's true now. Um, and why is there a, why is there a stigma surrounding mental illness, particularly in in healthcare professionals? Well, this is an interest of mine, not only personally but professionally, of course. Um, uh, I think people don't like the idea that their mental life can be outside of their control, and so when a disease strikes, like depression, or when someone reacts uncharacteristically um, to an event, um, you, you know, that, that sense of agency is lost, which is so important to our identities as, um, you know, our mood is so much a part of our identity, our mental life is so much a part of our identity that it really strikes at the heart of who we are as a person and our sense of self. Um, and so I think that can be really frightening to people and can make them reluctant to want to think about that and face that and seek help for that, that their life's not in their control and that they need assistance is, is something that is hard for people to accept, especially hard for, I think, healthcare professionals to accept who are very used to being in control. You know, they've fulfilled lifelong plans of uh, education and training. And um, and so it can be quite jarring to feel like this is something that they don't have control over. Um, I think there's the, so I think everybody faces that stigma. I think there's this added burden of um, stigma because most states require disclosure um, when you're applying for your license as to whether or not you have, uh, you know, I don't know, the, Terms vary from state to state, but emotional problems or uh, mental health problems that might interfere with your job. Um, and so, you know, that's uh, a burden that people who aren't healthcare professionals uh, have to face, uh, and this added stigma that comes with those kinds of disclosures. Um, it's unfortunate because. Uh, people who are healthcare professionals aren't protected uh, from these psychiatric problems that face everybody. Um, and in fact, they are more likely to have um, certain psychiatric diagnoses and certainly uh, suicide. So uh, it's a barrier, I think, for people seeking treatment and, um, and it's a barrier for them engaging in treatment and can have life you know, um, certainly uh, life-altering, if not life-ending, consequences. So uh, it's a it's an important problem to address. I think it's being addressed more, um, but it's amazing. I was on the admissions committee for several years at Hopkins um, for the medical school, and I because I'm interested in addiction and because I live and work in Baltimore, where um, addiction is an endemic problem uh, in the community. I would often ask people, you know, what their understanding of addiction is. I'd usually give them a case of somebody who, you know, went to a, you know, private, you know, prep school and, you know, was from a intact family, but ended up spending, it's a true case, ended up spending nine years shooting cocaine in an abandoned building in Baltimore. Like, how do they understand that? And so many students or yeah, applicants uh, would say, oh, well, there was something off about that family. They weren't raised right. So they had these moral kind of judgments and understanding of um, the origin of addiction. <laughs> and then I'd go through and ask them questions about how they might test their hypothesis, et cetera. But uh, they, most people really, uh, I would also often ask, do they think that it could ever happen to them, that they could ever be, at, you know, develop a substance use problem? And of course, no, 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 that could never happen to me, even though this is a group in which we know that the, the risks are higher than the general population for a substance use disorder. So um, I think there's just this sense of invincibility, um, this moral superiority, uh, and um, 
that and 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 this i guess uh conviction that everything they have that they need everything they need in life they have within them uh that makes it really hard for people who are medical students or trainees or physicians to accept accept that they need help yeah I, I totally agree i think there's also there are these cultural expectations built in in the field of medicine and and i think from patients too I, I we want our doctors to be the kind of people that we aren't necessarily that we can't necessarily be you know um and uh i feel like that puts this added pressure on too because it you're trying to put on this brave face and and be this you know intact kind of human being for your patients um but we're just as human as they are and it um it's i mean it's very upsetting to see to watch this play out at, at various steps of my training um either residents or medical students in the institutions i was a part of um took their own lives uh and you know i what i don't know and i don't see a way forward is how we sort of destigmatize this because i do think it really is built into the culture in such a profound way uh, that it feels almost irreversible how do you kind of think about like a path forward for for this well i i'm actually much more optimistic that we're moving in the right direction and i think part of it is you know, that was one of my motivations for sharing my own story um because I think more, the more people who are uh, in healthcare um, as healthcare professionals can share their own story, um, the the less um, frightening it becomes for other people experiencing this. And this is this could be your own story or a story of a family member. I think, but. Um, I think it's important that we share our stories, and I think more people are sharing their stories, which makes it um, seem like um, if you are experiencing a psychiatric problem, that you're not alone, and that there are people that you can talk to, and it doesn't mean that you're a bad person or that you're, you know, it's going to be the end of your career or anything like that. Um, so, I mean, certainly, my illness is was postpartum depression that I talk about in the book was not, is not the most highly stigmatized illness uh, within psychiatry. But, you know, I know um, colleagues who have had um, opioid use disorders um, who have self-disclosed that, uh, colleagues who have had um, close family members with schizophrenia who've disclosed that. Um, you know, there's a lot of, I think, reluctance not only to acknowledge our own illnesses, but those of our family members, because there's so much blame <laughs> that's given to healthcare professionals if their children are ill or things like that. So I think discussing these illnesses, if they occur in us, if they occur in our family members, is really important to helping people realize that they're not alone, that they're, you know, that it's not a moral judgment on them. Uh, and that there's opportunities to get help and to lead full lives. I, I want to shift again a bit to, to actually maybe um, beyond the book to some of the work you've been doing in the visual arts, because a lot of your um, research and, and thinking focuses on the role of visual arts in, in medicine, medical education. Uh, and in an article last year, you wrote that the close viewing of art has the potential to take the learner or clinician rapidly into places of deep reflection on questions fundamental to the human condition. Can you describe some of the uh, electives and exercise you're designing for physicians and physicians in training? Uh, and how do the visual arts help physicians become better physicians? Yeah, so this is an area of, uh, you know, that I, this is what I'm really most interested in right now is the role of the arts and humanities in general and visual arts specifically in uh, helping people um, explore these big questions, what it means to be human, um, what it means to be a physician, and what it means to lead a good life. 
Uh, I think, as we've alluded to in this conversation, um, medical students, physicians have had you know these narrow, relatively narrow training experiences, and are really not as uh, connected to their personal values. Uh, their these big questions of what they want out of life. They've been on a treadmill, right, in terms of their training, um, and haven't really had the time or really the suggestion to reflect on why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, you know, what does it all mean? And so I've designed courses of both uh, online and, um, and in-person courses that use art museum-based uh, pedagogical methods to explore these big questions. And I've worked with, I've developed programs for undergraduates, pre-meds, for medical students, for um, uh, graduate trainees like uh, residents and fellows, and also continuing medical education courses. And it's, um, you know, basically uh, these methods of looking at art, discussing art together, really allows people to reflect uh, to the degree that they're comfortable with. Um, it helps them uh, appreciate other people's perspectives. It gets them in touch with um, their own personal values. Um, and um, enables them to be aware of their own biases, helps them um, not only uh, articulate their ideas, uh, but also empathize and understand where other people's ideas are coming from. A lot of these are clinically relevant skills, um, but my main goal isn't skill mastery per se, but it is helping people um, explore, as I said, these big questions. Who are they? <laughs> what do they want out of life? What would a good life look like to them? Uh, what's the role of a physician? Uh, and really integrating their personal identities, their relational identities, and their uh, professional identities into a, into a whole identity um, where they can be themselves in their interactions with their patients, not feel like they're, you know, one person <laughs> when they're home and one person when they're with their colleagues or their patients, uh, feel that they have a place in medicine, regardless of their uh, personal values. That's very important these days, of course, because, um, you know, there's uh, an ideologic conformity <laughs> uh, in academic medicine where some people don't feel comfortable um, uh, sharing their ideas with their colleagues, their beliefs with their colleagues. They feel that they are, um, maybe they don't belong in medicine or meant to feel, made to feel that maybe they don't belong in medicine because of their beliefs, um, their views. Uh, there's a lot of, hmm, I guess there's a lot of, uh, uh, grappling with these tensions between personal values and values professed by uh, those in power in medicine that may be in conflict, and a lot of discernment needs to happen. Um, so you know, the courses are really designed to help people, give people a space to reflect and to reflect on at a level that they feel comfortable with. It was amazing to me. We had one student, we had a prompt uh, a written prompt um, that's very ambiguous. We had one of these every day in a four-week course, and one of them was, you know, write about the world within. That seems like a pretty straightforward question <laughs> to me. Um, but we had a student who was like, I don't, you know, we debriefed afterwards, um, and the student said, I, I didn't even understand the question. What do you mean, the world within? I'm like, that was really sad um, that somebody was so disconnected from their inner world. You know, they, it was, yeah. So we've got a lot to, of work to do in medicine, I think. And the reason I think this is so important is because ultimately I think it affects patient care, right? If you 
don't have an inner world uh, as a physician, then you're not going to be very likely to take an interest in the patient's inner world. Um, if you're not flourishing as a physician, or if you're not thinking about what you want out of life, you're not going to be really inclined to ask a patient what they want out of life. Um, so uh, I think, you know, we're very, we're a very individualistic society. I think our culture's gotten increasingly individualistic. I literally had a, a student, a medical student say, everything they need and will need, they have within them. Um, and so when you're dealing with that kind of constricted mindset um, and uh, that deficit of, uh, of reflection, you know, we have a long way to go to get um, physicians to a place where they have um, a sense of themselves and their own aspirations and uh, can be curious about their patients' selves and their patients' aspirations. Because without that, I don't think uh, they're our physicians are going to be equipped or see the purpose of thinking about their patients as people. Mm. Can you um, maybe give us, uh, I know you talked about that, that question, but can you um, give us an example of using the visual arts? You know, do you kind of show a painting or bring them to a museum? Yeah. So we have, yes, sorry. We have, we have, um, we have many, many uh, learning activities that are arts-based. Uh, I'll talk about a couple of them that I have used uh, a lot. One I'm certified in as a facilitator, and that's uh, visual thinking strategies. It's a method I really love. Um, it was developed at um, by Philip Yenowen when he was the director of museum education at MoMA in New York and Abigail Hoosen, who was a, a psychologist studying aesthetic development. And basically, they were um, trying to answer the question whether people learn anything when they come to museums. And they found that nobody really learned anything. They had pleasant experiences. And so they started studying, you know, what people, um, how people looked at art. Uh, and most people are curious about the story that art is telling. And so they developed this method called visual thinking strategies based on the evidence that they collected. Um, and so you look at a piece of, we're really learning from art. I want to make that distinction. We're not learning about art. Uh, so we're learning from art about what it means to be human, to be a physician, and to lead a good life. And so this method is one that enables an open-ended discussion. There's no agenda. Uh, I don't have a point that I want to make uh, about the piece of art or anything. I want to have participants be able to bring meaning to what they see. And so the first question in visual thinking strategies is what's going on in this picture? Because most people that look at art are curious about the story that the art is telling. And so after that, um, you know, people give their ideas, their interpretations of what's going on, and then we ask them to gr uh, ground that interpretation in visual evidence, um, developing critical thinking skills. And then we follow that up with the question, what more can we find? Bringing other people into the conversation. So you hear different perspectives from different people, different things that they're looking at, different ideas that they have. And um, after about 20 minutes of a discussion like that, um, you know, you we don't summarize, we just close, uh, and then we have a debrief about how anything that we've talked about is uh, relevant to uh, medical education or clinical practice. So um, that's an example of one activity. It sounds very simple, um, but uh, there's a lot of work that the facilitator does to um, 
keep the group in inquiry, um, keep them thinking, looking, revising their ideas. We use very neutral language. We're very use conditional language. You know, you see this as, you know, maybe this is a man um, who, you know, might be doing this. Um, you're curious about, you know, this or that. We don't, um, we don't impose our own ideas on the group and we just listen to what each person says and try to understand uh, what they're seeing, how they're interpreting that. Um, and it really does make one aware of um, how we think. So there's a big metacognitive <laughs> piece here. Um, and it also helps people talk about really challenging topics because we have this art work as a third thing. It's not, I'm not talking to you about, you know, our ideas about gender. I'm talking about this work of art. And in that discussion, we're learning about how we think about gender and how you might think about it differently than I think about it. Um, but without, again, in a neutral way, without making a judgment because we want to keep people talking. Um, and so I think it's a really powerful method, not only for medical learners, but I think it's a powerful method for people in general to be able to have conversations uh, around difficult, difficult, challenging topics. That's really neat. I, I think it also seems to me that it, um, and this gets back to the idea of limited time and always feeling like you're in a time crunch in medicine, the idea that you kind of slow down and try to notice things. And in order to notice things, you have to slow down and just take in everything. Um, that's, a, I don't know, that's really cool. Um, I had one last question for you because it's, it's, sure. a, it's a recent news item um, about uh, depression and I guess um, neurotransmitters. And, and it's been, uh, there's a lot of hullabaloo surrounding it. And I have to confess, I've not read the most recent kind of literature on it. Um, but uh, my sense is that there was a um, uh, some new research about how it's like depression is not necessarily a neurochemical imbalance, or that was the hypothesis. Is that right? So I've been on vacation for two weeks. So okay. <laughs> I don't know what's happened. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. But um, I would say that uh, I, I can say this. I, I mean, I think this whole, the whole idea of uh, you know a neurotransmitter deficit of some sort in depression is just ludicrous. Um, mm. You know, there's just no evidence for that. Uh, we don't know how antidepressants work. We don't know why they take three weeks to work. We don't know. We literally know very little about any of these medications. Uh, we do know that, um, you know, if it was just a matter of a neurotransmitter level, we would be able to diagnose that by drawing, you know, your uh, spinal fluid and measuring how much neurotransmitter you have of, you know, how much serotonin or whatever you have in your in your uh, cerebrospinal fluid, but that's not the case. So we know it's not that simple. Um, and we know that, uh, you know, the brain is extremely complex. Um, and there are many things that we might see, like changes in your mood because of being given something that increases the amount of neurotransmitter at your uh, synapses. But we don't know how that translates into improvement in mood at all. So um, yeah. I think the the whole, yeah, I think the this neurotransmitter deficit is a kind of an easy way to to explain that there's some brain function <laughs> that's altered, um, but it's not really a, a valid explanation. I think I think psychiatry has done a really good job at making it sound like we know a lot more than we do, uh, in part to help people, uh, you know, feel more confident that the treatments that we do know work, uh, you know, that that they will be more confident that these will work um, in themselves and take them because they do work, but how they work, 
why they work, I don't think anybody knows. And I think it's a very crude um, treatment at this point, uh, these antidepressants. I think they're better than nothing. Certainly they've saved you know millions of lives, but we've got a long way to go. And I think by studying the brain and so much effort has been put in so many dollars, so much resource, so many resources have been you know, uh, funneled into doing very reductive research, um, you know, reducing illnesses that are very complex like depression to um, simply brain functions. Uh, you know, that's money that even um, the former director of National Institute of Mental Health, Tom Insel, said was, uh, you know, uh, misspent. It was a major miscalculation. There's so, there's so many more available treatments, I, even for an illness like schizophrenia. And I didn't have this in the book, but I think it's a really important point, and I should have. The, um, you know, there's research that looks at people with active symptoms of schizophrenia. They're still hallucinating. They're still delusional. Um, and they have, so they've had no symptom recovery, and they've had little, if any, functional recovery. But they've still been able, 25% of those individuals with no functional recovery, no symptom recovery, have been able to achieve personal recovery. They've been able to feel like their life's worth living again, that they have a, a, a meaning and purpose in their life. Um, so there's a lot more that can be done to help people with these illnesses than simply giving them um, medications. Not to say that medications uh, can't help, uh, but sometimes they don't help. Uh, sometimes they are inadequate, but that doesn't mean that people can't um, still flourish in life. And that's, I think, having personal recovery means that you're, you know, you're on the track at least uh, to flourishing. And it seems to me that this is kind of where the perspectives comes in, where you kind of take a, a look at the entire person, not just at a checklist and give a medication and that's it. Yeah, there's a lot of hope. I mean, even with these very serious illnesses that, you know, none of us would want to have or have anybody that we love have, um, there's still a lot of hope. I, I have a colleague, and she's written about this publicly, whose daughter has um, uh, schizophrenia. She was able to graduate from Yale, get married, have a job, and she's still actively delusional. Um that's an incredible story, um, but it's not unique. As I said, 25% of people can can have personal recovery. She also has functional recovery, but still active uh, symptoms. That's wonderful. Uh, on that note, Meg, thank you so much for, for taking the time today. This is really a, a great conversation. Oh, thank you for having me. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.